sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the uh, results from the first round of elections in Brazil. I was going to be touching on uh, economic issues happening in Britain and much, much more. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Zoe Pepper Cunningham, a journalist with People's Dispatch. Zoe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And Zoe, this past weekend, the people of Brazil went to the polls to vote in their uh, presidential election, which, of course, saw a popular former president, uh, Lula da Silva, face off against a far right figure, Jair Bolsonaro. And not just a figure, I should say he is the incumbent. Um, And so in terms of the results, Lula did, in fact, win the first round with uh, approximately 48 percent of the votes, with Bolsonaro coming in just behind Lula at uh, about 43 percent. Now, uh, this was uh, an interesting result because um, in the lead up to the elections, uh, polling made it seem uh, as though Lula uh, had a great chance of really clenching the uh, uh, first round of elections, which would have basically prevented a a runoff and he would have uh, won it outright. And my understanding is that the second round will be taking place in Brazil on October 30th. And so I'm just uh, curious, Zoe, what are sort of your top line thoughts about uh, these results? I know there was a lot of energy and a lot of support um, from uh, the public for Lula. And I'm just wondering uh, how you're sort of uh, analyzing it all at this point. Yeah, well, I think uh, first and foremost, it has to be recognized as a victory. Lula da Silva is a candidate who spent 580 days in prison. Um, he was spent 580 days in prison on false corruption charges from 2018 um, to 2019. This is can't be undermined. I mean, the fact that he's even a candidate is a victory in itself, a victory of the people's movement that achieved his uh, freedom in 2019 and, you know, victory that he even won this first round, given the, you know, barrage of lies and slander that has been thrown at the Brazilian public for almost a decade against him. So that first off has to be recognized. Um, I think it, you know, the polls were giving Lula about 47 uh, percent of voter intention. So in in one sense, they're not they weren't super far off. I think where they did uh, miscalculate was with the support towards Jair Bolsonaro. They he had been polling at 33 to 35 percent, which is definitely um, a lot less than he received in these in these um, votes in this uh, elections. One big part of this is the fact that there was a significant portion of the population that hadn't decided their vote. And there was also about a 20% abstention rate in these elections, despite the fact that voting is mandatory in Brazil. You've got to find if you don't participate in the elections and um, without the electoral ticket, you can't do things like um, certain civil procedures that you need and all of that. So I think those are really key elements to point out. Of course, people were really pushing for the first round victory, but I think it still has to be recognized that this is a significant significant achievement that he was able to win in this first round, given how much was standing against him. I mean, oh, as I said, a decade of right-wing machinery, both from the media, from the judiciary, 
working against not only Lula, but the entire Workers' Party to defame its name, to say that it's just a group of corrupt people, of terrorists, of thieves, of, you know, so many different things. I mean, the fact that for years on the, the major magazines and newspapers, you would just see pictures of Lula dressed as a prisoner, saying that he's an awful person and all of these other lies about him. The fact that he's the front runner is so significant. I think the other, what's interesting is that the other candidates really did not break any sort of threshold. I mean, the third runner up has 4%, Simon Tibetti, um, Ciro Gomez, who's kind of the, the laughing stock really of the Brazilian politics because his vote has always been just to divide the other, the progressive vote. He refused to stand down, refused to express his report to, uh, support to Lula, despite being against Bolsonaro. Um, but he also only got 3%. So all of these other smaller candidates were not able to even get over 5%, even 10%. Um, that's significant, just showing that really there is a big division in society between people who not necessarily support Jair Bolsonaro, because I wouldn't say that those 51 million people do support Jair Bolsonaro and everything that he's done, but it is showing how deep-seated this anti-workers' party, anti-petismo, as they call it, rhetoric actually reaches. But, you know, it's it's definitely it's definitely an indictment, and I think it really just lays out the roadmap of where the left is going to have to double down and continue working extremely hard to achieve a second-round victory. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate you contextualizing some of this uh, polling, Zoe, and I agree. I mean, it definitely is uh, a victory. But I am curious from the from the right wing side of things, from the Bolsonaro side, what is his uh, uh, base of support? What notes is he hitting that's uh, uh, resonating with his base? I mean, uh, it seems as though his... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, popularity, if you will, uh, or approval ratings is what I'm really looking for. His approval ratings seem to have been dwindling uh, uh, over really the last couple of years. I mean, based uh, chiefly, I think, on his very poor response to the coronavirus pandemic. But I mean, what is it uh, that Bolsonaro is, I guess, putting forth in his campaign that is, you know, resonating with his supporters so much? I think it's a variety of things. Of course, he has a really divisive rhetoric in terms of how he talks about um, oppressed populations, marginalized populations in Brazil. He has appealed in some ways using religious rhetoric. He appealed a lot to the evangelical sectors in Brazil um, just due to the very, very public support of, you know, these large mega churches, large mega Baptist churches. His wife is a very public member. So the fact that he's speaking up for these sectors, I think, is speaking to that. Um, but I, you know, I mean, without really <laughs> having that much of a deep analysis of it, I'm not sure if people are necessarily, I mean, there is a section of society that really does believe in Bolsonaro that, um, <clears throat> is against, um, you know, press people having rights is against, you know, giving social programs to people to help them better their economic situation. There is a sector of society that does actually believe those things, but I think a lot of, what this vote means is just that there there's still an impact of all of these right wing campaigns to spread fake news, um, to demonize the left wing, to say all of these bad things about them. And that really just scares people into choosing the other choice. I don't think that these 51 million people 
really support all of the discourse and all of the rhetoric and all of the um, proposals of Jair Bolsonaro, like, for example, that um, the Brazilian people must be armed. This is, you know, of course, coming from the U.S. context, the, the question of the right to bear arms and and the gun lobby is a historic one and has always really been present. In Brazil, there's a much less, uh, this has really come to the fore with the presidency of Jair Bolsonaro. It's not a society that is, uh, you know, has issues with gun. We I mean the widespread kind of gun violence that that happens in the U.S. Of course, there's a lot of violence, um, you know, especially from the police, etc. But um, it's you know his proposals are not necessarily in line with the Brazil of the masses of the majorities. Um, but you know the electoral machinery that he has, the money that he has, the ability um, to use all of the different forms of communication to spread his messages. Um, using, for example, pastors in churches and telling them that it's a sin to vote for Lula, that religiously they should support him. All of these strategies are way more about driving people uh, in fear using this kind of um, rhetoric uh, than any concrete proposals. He doesn't really actually propose that much at all for the Brazilian people. Um, and the only kind of emergency aid program that he enacted was just a month before the election. He uh, really, in a Hail Mary kind of move, just tried to show that he was going to provide some funds um, and try to convince people that, oh, after this economic devastation and catastrophe where over 125 million people are food insecure, I'm going to give a couple of uh, emergency aid to, to some families in the country. But this was obviously an electoral campaign move. But yeah, I think really it's 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 really about driving people away from the PT vote and much less about his proposals appealing to people. I see. So if I'm hearing you correctly, I mean, it sounds like um, uh, uh, Bolsonaro's momentum is sort of uh, uh, bolstered by a negative campaign against the Workers' Party as opposed to a positive program for the Brazilian people. And, you know, what I'm really interested in, Zoe, just, uh, you know, uh, from where I sit here in the U.S., is just the um, grassroots element in terms of uh, building support for Lula da Silva. I feel like we've seen different social movements, different community groups. I mean, just these positively massive uh, uh, demonstrations and whatnot and rallies in support of Lula. And so uh, as someone, you know, who's been there on the ground, what has that looked like to see these kinds of mobilizations? And, you know, what have people been telling you in the conversations you've been having about uh, uh, why all of this energy and excitement? Definitely. I think that's the fundamental question in these elections is, how is the campaign done on the left? And I think it's definitely something that has to be celebrated. It was very, very impressive the way that progressive organizations and movements really took on this campaign beyond um, a question of, of just electing Lula, but really about engaging with society um, and presenting to society a different proposal of a country, a different um, way of thinking about people's rights, about what people should be guaranteed by the government. Um, there has been the formation of popular committees across the country. These popular committees are formed in neighborhoods. They're also related to different sectoral issues, anti-racism popular committees, um, women's popular committees. And they've basically been working to promote their local candidates and also the, the ticket of Lula and the entire alliance. Um, and it's, it's a really impressive initiative. They've uh, for example, in Sao Paulo, one of the popular committees formed a samba block um, and they would go around to neighborhoods in the periphery of the city 
and kind of do parades and marches and talk to people, distribute flyers. It's extremely impressive. And I think there's definitely a change from 2018, where it was a much more uh, institutional campaign run by the Workers' Party. This was really just taken on by the people. Um, this was, of course, there was a very robust campaign led by the PT, but the people themselves really, really appropriated this campaign and took it where they where they needed to. Um, you know, talking to people, a lot of, there's a lot of, hope in the possibility of a Lula presidency in terms of changing the economic situation. So a lot of people I spoke to who are not necessarily from people's movements, just people on the street, they were supporting the, the, the campaign of Lula because they wanted to eat meat again. They wanted to be able to have access to food, have access to jobs. And these economic issues really motivated them to participate. On terms of the left, they've also been building a lot of different proposals, um, especially, you know, we've been working a lot with the Landless Rural Workers Movement. They have a lot of different proposals, how to combat hunger, which today is the primary question that really is Brazilian society is facing. As I said, over 125 million people food insecure, 33 million people in hunger, which is extreme food insecurity. And so this this is a key, this is a key uh, point and um, the MST has also, for example, put forward several um, candidates for for local and federal deputies. Six of them were elected. So it's a whole process of building people's power, engaging with society, engaging in dialogue with society. What are the issues that people are facing? I think there was a definitely a qualitative leap in that sense from the 2018 elections to this year. Um, again, even though there wasn't a first round victory. There was so much support from across society for Lula. There were, you know, from actors, soccer players, but even in, you know, at the small neighborhoods across the city, you would just see so much uh, posters, stickers, and people really, really out there um, getting excited for this change. Yeah, and you know, the fact that uh, just sort of your rank-and-file person on the street is, you know, responding to the Lula program in this way, you know, not from an ideological place or because they're a part of these movements or people's organizations, but purely because it directly impacts them in a material way, I think is uh, more than a little noteworthy in and of itself. And you know, Zoe, what we always raise when um, talking about not only Lula, but with, um, I think, a lot of the recent elections in um, uh, Latin America, we, we, we try to situate the particular election itself in a regional context, right? And my feeling is that Lula uh, is also getting support generally, uh, even from outside Brazil, uh, from certain progressive and left elements in Latin America, and generally, I would say, progressive people uh, around the world who sort of follow uh, politics in Latin America. And so, I mean, what kind of dynamics do you see sort of uh, uh, inherent in that? And what I'm really asking is, why is uh, a, a Lula presidency in this moment uh, important for Latin America? Well, we've seen a lot of declarations of support for Lula from Gustavo Petro, Diomara Castro, uh, all really excited about the possibility of a progressive uh, government in Brazil. This is crucial, of course, because America, Latin America is on is on an upswing in terms of the growth of progressive governments. Um, of course, the latest one with uh, Colombia. Um, there's been tremendous strides with having a more united regional bloc, with having more progressives in power in, in 
you know, just five years ago, the con- the continent was dominated by conservative governments that all ganged up against Venezuela. And the fact that now they could be working together, working harmoniously, not with the goal of destroying another country, but actually building economic proposals, having economic integration. I mean, the fact of the matter is that a country cannot survive in isolation. A country needs to engage in economic activity with other countries. It needs to have um, trade with other countries. Um, the question is, um, and, and with what conditions and in what agreements? And so, for example, we can look at initiatives that took place during the heyday of Alba when there were so many p- different countries that were part of this alliance. Um, Petrocaribe, the fact that Venezuela was able to sell discounted petroleum to many countries in the region, this made a huge difference in these countries' ability to survive and to provide for their people. And so proposals and initiatives like these are only possible when there is a progressive block in the region that's able to stand up to foreign and you know imperialist interests in the region. I say that because it's not only the United States, but a lot of European countries have big interests in Latin America, companies, extractive companies, um, continuing to extort debt from these uh, from the region, the IMF. And so if they can work together and if they can be interdependent and, you know, then from there also Brazil is part of BRICS. It has very strong, it has historically had very strong relationships with China, with South Africa, with Russia. Having this economic block is key and there are better conditions to engage in trade. There's better conditions to explore other possibilities. For example, during the pandemic, if Brazil had been open to uh, medical cooperation with Cuba, they probably would have saved hundreds of of, uh, thousands of lives. And that's not an exaggeration. So it's these kind of things which make the possibility of a progressive Brazil, you know, a a life and death question for the region, but of course for Brazil. Definitely. And I'm also wondering, my last question, Zoe, is, you know, between now and the second round of elections, what uh, like what 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 happens at this point? Is there more campaigning or or what sort of uh, uh, is set to really take place between now and this next vote? I think without the shadow of a doubt, there's going to be an intense, intense campaign. I was on the Avenida Paulista last night when Lula spoke to thousands of supporters and he said, you know, I've never been able to win in a first round. And it's important to point out there that in Brazilian uh, presidential elections, except for two times, there's always been a second round election. So this is not anything surprising either that there's a second round. And he said to people, you know, I've never won in a first round election. And I guess this meant this time it wasn't meant to be. And I guess I'm just going to have to work even harder for the next 30 days. And then I won't be able to rest for the next 30 days. And that's exactly what it is. It's going to be 30 days or 28 days of arduous work of, I'm sure, door-to-door campaigning. I'm sure there will be a lot of analysis of what regions of the country, the Northeast, which is the historic stronghold of the PT, which is the region with the highest um, black, the biggest uh, black population, um, a population that was extremely impacted by the PT policies, um, by um, the poverty alleviation by the by the hunger alleviation. This was again they won in a landslide in the in the northeast. Will definitely um, be Bolsonaro in this region, but it is the southeast, the center east, and the south, which have also been historic strongholds of Bolsonaro, which are um, going to be definitely the targets of the next uh, month's campaign, which is going to need a lot of 
the same of what's been happening of the popular committees mobilizing, of people using all forms of communication to get out the vote, to convince people, to talk to people. Um, I'm sure there's going to be new strategies that they're going to come up with, but it's definitely going to be a lot of uh, it's going to be intense month for sure. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Zoe, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about striking prisoners inside the Alabama prison system. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Natalia Marquez, writer and organizer from New York City. Natalia, thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me, Sean. Absolutely. And uh, Natalia, here recently, prisoners within the mass incarceration system of the state in Alabama have organized uh, basically a system wide shutdown and have uh, also been engaging in uh, work stoppages and things like this, which is um pretty impactful for the Alabama prison system as uh, incarcerated people are precisely the ones who engage in the labor that's uh, pretty core to uh, the basic functions of these uh, facilities. And so I was hoping you could help us understand, you know, what are the uh, prisoners demanding? What is sort of the context of the Alabama prisons that led to this? Uh, What should we understand uh, from what's happening in Alabama prisons at this point? Yeah, so, um, you know, as you said, the prisoners in the state of Alabama themselves have self-organized a massive system-wide strike. Um, You know, prisoners in the U.S. are really responsible for the running of the prisons itself. That's the majority of their work, you know, cleaning, cooking, doing those types of tasks that just maintain the prison system. And so, you know, by withholding their labor, Alabama prisoners have shut down the prison system in the entire state. And it's important to note that, you know, during prisoner-led actions, Prison officials really rarely like to admit that any action is happening. But on September 26th, the first day of the strike, the Alabama Department of Corrections commissioner said that all, you know, that that all these facilities, that there were reports of worker stoppages at all major correctional facilities in the state. Um, And that's really, really a massive claim because, you know, you're essentially admitting to worker-led, incarcerated worker-led action across the entire uh, state of Alabama, you know, um, and, you know, although the ADOC commissioner does claim that all these facilities were operational, that they are operational, um, the prisoners themselves um, coming from reports from inside the prisons are saying that that's not true, that, um, you know, a lot of these major services in the prisons have shut down that, you know, prisoners are not even able to access proper food because um, wardens and prison officials don't want to do the labor themselves of providing food to the prisoners. Um, and also important to note the, the nature of the demands. You know, even though this is a worker stoppage, it's more so a means to an end because the demands are 
really around the sentencing laws themselves and not about labor conditions or prison slavery, even though Alabama is one of the states that does not pay prisoners for the majority of the work that they do inside prisons. Um, And, you know, a lot of these laws are around the very harsh um, parole board in Alabama that very rarely grants parole um, to any prisoners um, and really trying to change a lot of the laws that have these produce the very lengthy sentences that, you know, really fuel mass incarceration. Yeah. And well, number one, I agree. It's definitely uh, noteworthy about how the prison system itself is sort of acknowledging that this is happening. I mean, the, these administrations of the prisons uh, typically have a stranglehold on the information that comes out of the prisons. And so to acknowledge that this is even happening, I think, is more than a little noteworthy. And I also think you're correct to sort of highlight how um, uh, prisoners are withholding labor and sort of using labor as a way to bring attention to uh broader issues with mass incarceration in Alabama as a whole. And I actually want to read off some of the um, demands that they have. Uh, Number one, they're asking to repeal the habitual offender law immediately, make presumptive sentencing standards retroactive immediately, repeal the drive-by shooting statute, create a statewide conviction integrity unit, uh, create mandatory parole criteria that will guarantee parole to all eligible persons who meet the criteria, create a streamlined review process for medical furloughs and review of elderly incarcerated individuals, immediate release reduction of the 30-year minimum for juvenile offenders to no more than 15 years before they are eligible for parole, and victims should not be able to keep protesting after an incarcerated citizen's second time going up for parole. Now, there's a couple of these that I really wanted to uh, hit on, Natalia. I mean, just to start, this habitual offender law. Now, it's my understanding that this is basically Alabama's version of the street three strike rule that we see in states like uh, California and others. So uh, could you break down just what this habitual offender law is and how it sort of um, is connected to the mass incarceration issue in Alabama? Yeah, so um, this law is is quite an old law um, in 1979. And just reading off the actual language of the law, Um, The Habitual Felony Offender Act mandates life imprisonment without parole for persons convicted of a Class A felony after having been previously convicted of any three felonies. Um, And so, you know, three strikes laws such as this one are extremely common in the U.S., as you mentioned. Um, And these laws fuel mass incarceration. A lot of the reasons that we have so many um, people in prison in the U.S. is because people are in prison for a very long time for relatively minor crimes. And essentially, you know, if you have been convicted of three felonies, you are going to be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, um, regardless of what those felonies are. So, you know, felonies could be nonviolent crimes, right? Um, you know, drug possession or, or, or things like that, you know, and so you could be given a life sentence for essentially like a, you know, three nonviolent crimes. Um, and in practice in Alabama, um, 350 people who, you know, have committed non-homicide crimes, crimes that not, do not involve murder, are currently serving life sentences in Alabama due to this law. Um, and so, you know, people point out that um, it's not it's not fair um, for people who have committed nonviolent crimes to be in prison for life. Um, and a lot of this, you know, a lot of these, these sort of sentencing laws that are extremely harsh 
are the reason that we have so many people in prison um, in the U.S. and in Alabama, you know. And I do also want to touch on the situation of parole in Alabama that the striking prisoners have really, really touched on and really, really brought up as an issue. Um, because in Alabama, the parole board has become notorious for essentially denying almost everyone's parole. Um, the numbers that are coming out, you know, that prisoners are themselves reporting are extremely bad. Um, and those are the more recent numbers. But in terms of the data that we actually have, um, in 2021, the state's parole rate fell far short of even what the parole board's own standards are. And only 15% of prisoners were actually granted parole, um, eligible prisoners. So also, you know, black prisoners were granted parole, like, you know, half as frequently as white prisoners. So, so prisoners themselves are bringing up this issue of racism. Um, and, you know, a, a notable case is, is the case of Michael Bettis, who sir, has already served 12 years out of a 20-year sentence for drug possession, for marijuana possession. Um, and he was denied parole in May. And so, you know, this is an individual who has served over a decade for, you know, having some weed um, and selling it. And he was again denied parole. Um, and so, you know, having, having laws like these, are, you know, why the system of mass incarceration exists. They fuel the system. And by challenging these laws, the prisoners are themselves, you know, attacking the whole structure of mass incarceration. They're, you know, they're bringing to light the reason that it exists. And, you know, the work stoppage is really like a brilliant way to like to draw attention to this issue and make it impossible to ignore yeah, definitely. And I mean, how does the um, the, the drive by uh, shooting statue sort of connect to that as well? Because I feel like that's also kind of a part of this uh, broader piece you're discussing here. Yeah, yeah. And prisoners, you know, as you read from the demands, have also um, brought up Alabama's drive by shooting statute, which, you know, it, it's, a, it's a law from 1975. And it says that, you know, killing a person through a drive by shooting is punishable by death which is, like, obviously the harshest punishment that you could give for any crime. Um, and, you know, a lot of these statutes, you know, even though this law was passed in 1975, a lot of these, these types of statutes across the country that, um, you know, are extremely, extremely harsh, and obviously, you know, capital punishment is the harshest sort of punishment, um, they're really a relic of the, of the, you know, the late 20th century tough-on-crime era. Um, where, you know, a lot of these laws that fuel mass incarceration were passed. And according to um, a prisoner-led organization, the Free Alabama Movement, um, this statute has been applied disproportionately against Black men. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of these laws, like, really, like, when you look at the data, you can see the impact that they have. So um, Alabama incarcerates um at a rate far higher than any country on earth. Obviously, the U.S. is incarcerated at, a, at the highest rate on earth, but it also, you know, um, incarcerates people in, a, in at a rate higher than the vast majority of states in the United States um, itself. Um, and it doesn't seem like from these um, from these parole from this parole board, it doesn't seem like the state wants to change that. Right, the state is working to maintain the system of mass incarceration, um, even though, you know, like something notable that, that organizers and activists have brought up is the fact that um, they're actually building three new prisons in Alabama 
expanding their system of mass incarceration and diverting COVID funds in order to do so. And so, you know, prisoners are really shedding light on on this issue, even though it seems like the state of Alabama just wants to increase the system. And, you know, I think it's obvious that if the prisoners hadn't brought this up, there would even there wouldn't even be a discussion um, around these demands in the government of Alabama. Absolutely. And Natalia, you published a piece about this, uh, explaining all this well. I encourage people to check out entitled Alabama Prisoners Organize a System-Wide Shutdown. And you make a couple of statistical points that I found really quite striking. I mean, number one, uh, Alabama state prison system contains about one percent of the state's total population, which is wild. And you also report that as of last year, 2021, Alabama incarcerated nine hundred and thirty eight per one hundred thousand people, which is a higher rate than every country on earth and the vast majority of U.S. states. And so this this is a pretty serious and frankly brutal and really inhuman, I think, sort of system that we're talking about in Alabama. And I also thought it was notable about how uh, Kay Ivey, the governor of Alabama, responded to the demands of these prisoners, saying, quote, some of these demands suggest that criminals like murderers and serial child sex offenders can walk the streets. And I can tell you that will never happen in the state of Alabama, where we will always prioritize the safety of our citizens. And so we see Kay Ivey here sort of using these well-worn tactics of uh, fear mongerings of, you know, the, the the prison doors just being thrown open and having just the, the worst of the worst uh, uh, released onto uh, the streets of Alabama, basically to show that uh, as governor, she's absolutely no um, intention of uh, actually addressing this. And so all of this to me sort of points to, frankly, the correctness of uh, what the prisoners are uh, really putting forth here because I just feel like it helps paint a picture of just how violent this um, a, a prison system is, Alabama. I mean, you know, as it happens, both sides of my family for Alabama. And definitely it's a state that is still uh, very much functioning in, uh, uh, you know, a style akin to the formal slavery that defined it uh, once upon a time. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, organizers themselves, you know, have referred to the, themselves as Alabama slaves and um, prisoners across the country really understand that um, the labor that they, you know, that the prison system forces them to do is essentially slavery. You know, Alabama is one of the few states in the country that forces inmates or, or incarcerated workers to, to work. Um, and also one of the few states in the country that doesn't pay workers for most of the work that they do. And this is a country, I mean, this is a state in the Deep South, obviously has this um, very violent history of slavery. Um, this, is hap- this is the sort of thing that happens all across the South. You know, um, Angola prison in Louisiana is especially infamous for this. Some of the visuals that come out of that prison, you know, um, incarcerated workers picking cotton, that sort of thing that really um, draws attention to this issue of prison slavery. And also, you know, I'm glad that you brought up the violence because um, the Department of Justice is actually um, in the process of uh, filing a lawsuit against the state of Alabama because of the conditions in the prisons there, saying that Alabama fails to provide protection from prison on prisoner violence and sexual abuse, et cetera. 
um, prisoners themselves have, have reported this. Um, some of the latest reports that are coming out of the prisons are that um, prisoners are dying due to neglect. Um, some of the videos and pictures are really striking. Um, if you go look on the Free Alabama Movement Twitter page, they're always putting out new reports coming from inside the prisons. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, the Alabama prison system is extremely violent. Um, recently has come under fire for two um, botched executions, one of Alan Eugene Miller, who, in which, you know, ADOC um, officials failed to find a vein um, until midnight when his death warrant expired, um, and he's due for another execution soon. Um, and the case of Joe Nathan James, who was essentially, um, through an autopsy, it was discovered that he was essentially mutilated for three hours um, while ADOC officials attempted to find a vein. Um, and this is something that journalists have reported. And so, yeah, it's obviously extremely violent. Also, the case of Castelio DeMarcus Vaughn. Um, recently, there have been very, very shocking pictures of this very emaciated, very physically ill-looking prisoner, Vaughn, who underwent surgery in the in the custody of the Elmore Correctional Center. Um, and his sister really shed like really shed light on on these images that were coming out of the prison of him looking extremely emaciated and and poorly cared for. Um, the prison system claimed that he refused medical treatment, and that's why he he was looking like that. His sister does not believe that, obviously, um, and saying that he looked far better even months before when she visited him. So. You know, um, also prisoners are reporting that the prison system is retaliating against their organizing by um, depriving them of food. You know, obviously, since prisoners are not working the kitchens, um, wardens and, and prison guards are really struggling with um, providing food for everyone. It really shows you how um, essential um, incarcerated workers are to the system of the prison, to reproducing their own imprisonment and suffering um and now that um they're no longer working the the wardens are you know attempting to work but also in retribution severely underfeeding um these incarcerated workers so you know um pictures that prisoners are taking of their meals show you know just a spoonful of peanut butter, a few slices of bread, like some cheese, just ridiculously low amounts of food that they're getting. And this is something that they're still reporting. And, you know, the strike has been going on for eight days at this point. Um, and, um, you know, in fact, a source, um, a prisoner reported that um, the Elmore, um, the Staten County, uh, the Staten Correctional Facility um, officials said that they would only receive meals twice a day until they stopped protesting. And so prisoners themselves are reporting the types of things that they're hearing from the officials, you know, obviously extremely violent, um, extremely scary. But as prisoners themselves are saying, they're not going to back down anytime soon. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Natalia, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back. 
So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about issues within the British economy, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Kenneth Surin, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Center for European Studies at Duke University. Dr. Surin, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Surin, in Britain, we're witnessing a a, a reversal of uh, certain aspects of uh, the country's tax policy under Prime Minister Liz Trust and her finance minister, uh, Kwesi Kwarteng, putting forth what they called a a, a mini budget, which uh, had a pretty serious impact on the country economically and also on the pound. And I was hoping Hoping, number one, if you could help us understand just what is the substance of this mini budget and why is the Tory government uh, uh, taking this approach? Oh, well, this is um, a story that uh, has a long background, but also a short one. Now, the long background, first of all, Mrs. Thatcher. Uh, the late Mrs. Thatcher, is something of an idol, uh, I-D-O-L, in the Conservative Party. So uh, the Conservative Party genuflects to her memory, almost worships her, and makes various attempts to say that its economic policies are in line with the vision that Mrs. Thatcher had which, uh, with some differences from Ronald Reagan, basically Reagan and Thatcher were the two inaugurators of what's called neoliberalism. And in a word, of course, it's a complex uh, phenomenon, but in a word, neoliberalism is uh, a form of um, free market uh, ideology Now, I call it ideology because I should put free market in quotation marks. Um, What we know is that neoliberalism has allowed markets uh, basically to create monopolies. But so, free markets, so-called, deregulation, uh, especially on the environment, workers' rights, etc., and... uh, a so-called small state, um, meaning no state intervention, if that can be helped, low taxation, and low public spending. And basically, uh, the terms of the budget that you just mentioned um, tried to adhere Um, And remember, Mrs. Thatcher was working in the 1980s and 40 years later tried to adhere to those tenets. So that's the long story. Um, The short story uh, basically is this. The Conservative Party is in its 12th year of power. It's run out of steam. It's run out of ideas. It has been shown repeatedly to be incompetent. Uh, Just think of the way it managed the uh, COVID pandemic with uh, the highest death toll per 
capita in the Western world, um, incompetent, um, run out of ideas, and basically on its last legs. So I think what Trust did, and remember, she wasn't elected uh, by the British public. Uh, this was basically an election held by Conservative Party members, um, about 200,000 of them, mainly geriatric, white, property owners, uh, and of course, belonging to the well-off echelon of society. So she basically wanted to cater to that grouping and to produce a budget that, if you like, would shake things up. Well, it shook things up in the wrong way. Uh, as you pointed out, the pound sterling tanked, um, the, uh, the gilt markets, the bond markets um, tanked, um, and uh, the, uh, um, the cost of borrowing in a time of inflation um, also went up. So all in all, a disaster for the British economy, and that's where we are today. Yeah, I appreciate you breaking that down. And I can't help but wonder because, I mean, you, you talked about the uh, neoliberal program sort of writ large. And certainly uh, being in the U.S., we're quite familiar with that, um, a system that uh, I would argue has had, I mean, frankly, devastating impacts for the world. And you noted within that about how this tends to uh, take the form, at least in, in, in certain ways, for basically gifts to the already wealthy. And so... My question is, what does this kind of economic program look like for the poor and working people of Britain? Um, well, I think the implication of your question is that it is absolutely devastating for the poor. Now, we must remember that the poor were in a precarious situation even before this budget. Um, but the Tory party has been in power for 12 years, as I mentioned. It's the party of austerity. Um, the welfare state uh, has been slashed at its knees. Uh, benefits have been cut. And people are reliant. While heating uh, and uh, the price of um, electricity for cooking except, and gas for cooking, etc., have gone up, People can't afford, people who are already poor can't afford to heat their homes uh, or afford food, let alone cook the food. So um, the poor, as I said, were extremely vulnerable even before this budget. And the budget, of course, basically ground them into the dust um, even more. Totally. And I can't help but wonder, doctor, are there any uh, ripple effects from what we're seeing in Britain? I mean, is there any potential <clears throat> for this to, you know, impact uh, other governments or perhaps the economy in general uh, elsewhere in Europe? Or do you think the effects uh, may stay contained to Britain? Well, I think there's one factor that is shared with uh, other countries in Europe. And of course, this is the cost of energy which has resulted largely from uh, the war in Ukraine and Russia basically 
um, closing off the pipelines that brought energy, um, cheap energy, uh, liquid gas, um, and uh, petroleum to Europe. So energy prices throughout Europe um, have gone up on the whole. And Britain is one of the countries affected by this. And, you know, there you have it. This was a country that was reeling, let's remember, from the impact of Brexit, uh, which already reduced uh, growth in the economy uh, by about 4%. So uh, on top of the Brexit crisis, we have the energy crisis, and now we have a budget that uh, will basically... um, implement a form of lunacy for the British economy. Yeah, and you mentioned the uh, uh, energy crisis, uh, Dr. Surin. I mean, that's definitely a serious issue happening within Britain as uh, a whole right now. I actually saw just this morning that apparently um, a hawk or hake, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, H-A-K, which reportedly is one of the uh, largest vegetable brands in Northern Europe, uh, uh, is reportedly going to shut down production for six weeks due to high energy costs. And I feel like we're already sort of seeing um, some social fallout from this energy issue with mass protests in different parts of uh, Europe and, uh, you know, people responding in this way as uh, Europe prepares to head into uh, a, a cold winter. And so, I mean, it seems then that uh, this this economic news from within Britain, which is in its second recession in three years, as you note in a recent piece in Counterpunch uh, about this, I mean, it doesn't feel like uh, some of these uh, pressing issues for the rank and file person, both within Britain and the continent, are are necessarily being uh, addressed uh, and resolved. So, I mean, what is your view for how the social situation may develop or uh, perhaps, as the case may be, how it may devolve uh, within Britain as these trends continue? Well, um, I have to say that overall, Britain is an extremely deferential society. Uh, We saw it during the, uh, uh, the mourning period for the late Queen Elizabeth. It's quiescent. It's not like the French who seem to take to the street uh, to start a riot at the slightest provocation. Uh, It's a deferential society. Um, And so far, there have been protests, but no large-scale rioting, as you probably would have in any other European country. In the shorter term, within the parliamentary context, this has translated into a massive surge of support for the Labour Party, which under Keir Starmer has basically done nothing but sit on the fence and watch the, uh, uh, this situation unravel to its advantage. Uh, the latest poll shows that Labour uh, has a lead of 33 percentage points over the Conservative Party. And what this translates into, in terms of the parliamentary dynamic, is that if an election were held today, Keir Starmer uh, and the Labour Party would emerge with a 100-seat majority. And and just to uh, put a contrast to that, The Conservative Party won the 2019 general election with an 80-seat majority, which was deemed to be uh, 
an absolutely whopping majority. So if Starmer comes in with a 100-seat majority, basically the Labour Party will run the country. There is a caveat here, um, and it is this, that opinion polls everywhere, and that includes the United States, um, represent a protest factor. So uh, come an election, uh, congressional or presidential in this country, uh, or parliamentary in the UK, people tend to um, remember uh, their party allegiances and abandon the protest factor uh, in their opinion. So um, majorities invariably uh, in an actual election do not reflect those in the polling. But even so, um, to have polling numbers uh, of that amount uh, is, you know, I think pretty much unprecedented. Not even Mrs. Thatcher uh, achieved those numbers. So that's the parliamentary uh, scenario uh, surrounding this budget. Yeah, and what you're saying, Doctor, um, makes me think about how the budget and the economic situation in Britain overall um, is connected to the political situation in Britain. Of course, the the trust government following from the uh, Boris Johnson government. And uh, I'm just sort of curious because you started off sort of giving some of the context for this and about how the trust government uh, sort of sees itself as the ideological heirs of uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher. But I mean, what does the rise of uh, a Liz trust to leadership you think sort of reflect about uh, politics within Britain uh, at this point? Now, first off, it has to be stated that Liz Truss is an absolute mediocrity. Um, her speech is robotic. Uh, she's devoid of ideas. She's, uh, in terms of service, being the longest service, longest serving minister in the Tory government that has been in power since 2010. She's held several important ministerial positions, Foreign Secretary, for instance, uh, Secretary of the Environment, etc. And in none of those, and I think that she's held a couple of other ministerial positions, and in none of those has she um, uh, done anything uh, of distinction uh, anything that has uh, struck uh, uh, people as uh, her being someone um, of capacity, thoughtfulness, innovativeness, etc., etc. She's basically been a placeholder, holding a finger up to the wind and shaping her political positions accordingly. We have to remember that when she entered politics, she was an anti-royalist, liberal Democrat. Uh, in the Brexit referendum, she campaigned to remain uh, in the EU, uh, but switched, like Boris Johnson, switched her allegiances on the EU in order to acquire power. So this is someone who really has very few deeply held convictions and is simply a placeholder for power. 
Mm. And does that reflect at all from your perspective on uh, uh, Quartang, Kwesi, the, uh, the, the finance minister? I mean, uh, what is your sort of estimation of uh, him within this government? I think he uh, he's much more intelligent than she is. Um, his convictions um, are more deeply rooted uh, ideologically. So he is a disciple. Remember, he has a PhD in economic history. Um, and he is a, a, an extremely sharp person intellectually. But he has long been, uh, even from his days in student politics, uh, been a disciple of Milton Friedman uh, and Friedrich Hayek. Uh, so uh, basically, he's dug himself even further into the ground uh, with his free market neoliberalism. And what's happening now, this is interesting to see, um, both Truss and Kuateng, um are basically trying to shove the blame for this economic fiasco onto each other. But at the same time, they know that if the one goes, then the question will arise, well, you shared the same position on the British economy. So one has gone. Why, the, why is the other one still remaining in office? Um, so they're joined at the hip, but at the same time, it serves them to uh, cast responsibility um, on the other. It's a delightful show to watch um, if you're not a Conservative Party supporter. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Surin, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, October 3rd, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, Libra, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on this show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also uh, check us out and download the show on SputnikNews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also hear the show at Sputnik.Mave.Digital. That's Sputnik.M-A-V-E.Digital. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash B-A-M necessary. And as always, we are broadcasting live from Rumble. That's Rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B. B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And to kick the hour off today, I want to wish a very happy 135th 
birthday to my alma mater, the Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University in Tallahassee, Florida, which was founded on this day in 1887. Shout out to all my Rattlers for the very greatest historically black university there is. I said it. We can fight about it later. If you like, I will win. But be that as it may, we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Carlos Martinez, author and activist, co-founder of No Cold War and co-editor of Friends of Socialist China. Carlos, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean. Hey, Jackie. Great to be back on the show. Hope you guys are doing okay. We're doing well, Carlos. We're doing well. And, you know, uh, China actually recently marked uh, 73 years since the triumph of its uh, socialist revolution on October 1st, 1949. And the leader of the Chinese revolution, uh, Mao Zedong, uh, also once declared, quote, China has stood up, sort of an acknowledgement of China's victory over and emerging from this, uh, what they call the century of humiliation, this history of colonialism and all these sorts of things that just had a, a devastating impact on China and its people for so long. And coming from that to where China is today uh, in terms of uh, sort of an ascendant world power, I think is quite remarkable. And I feel like, uh, you know, this phenomenon that we call socialism with Chinese characteristics is a big part of that success. But Carlos, given sort of the broader context in uh, of geopolitics, what do you see as the significance of China's uh, national day here and all the different observances we've been seeing around it? Thanks, Sean. Yeah, look, you're absolutely right. And national day is always, every year, it's a, a source of huge pride in China because it's sort of, as you say, it marks the moment that the Chinese people stood up in Mao Zedong's words. It marks the, the moment that the Chinese people's fortunes changed very dramatically for the better. You know, life expectancy at that time in 1949 was 35 or thereabouts. Now it's over 77. It's actually this year exceeded the US's life expectancy. It was several years below the global average. Now it's several years above the global average. Literacy rates gone from maybe 10% to practically 100%. You know, youth literacy is 100%. Uh, the government very quickly instituted land reform, rolled out healthcare around the country to the countryside for the first time, rolled out education, free education, universal education around the country for the first time. And what you've had in those, those 73 years of progress is one of the poorest countries in the world now becoming, by any reasonable measure, the world's largest economy. You know, you've gone from a century of humiliation and imperialist domination, opium wars, foreign concessions, armed interventions by the British, the French, and many more, to now being a strong, a united, an independent, a stable country that's able to defend itself, but actually has been incredibly peaceful and has not been at war for the last 43 years. So, you know, it's gone from this state of backwardness and ignorance to becoming a world leader in numerous important areas of science and technology. And the fact is that the Chinese people now live incomparably better than their grandparents and their great-grandparents did. And that's obviously a source of pride, and it's also a source of kind of legitimacy, if you will, and credit for the Chinese revolutionary process and for the Communist Party. Meanwhile, I think the celebration, and you, you sort of touched on this in your introduction, 
is it's particularly resonant at this moment in time when the US and its allies are really stepping up their hostility. You've got this AUKUS coalition, this uh, trilateral security deal that's been formed, essentially a deal for the US and Britain to provide uh, Australia with nuclear-powered submarines. You've got increased freedom of navigation assertions in the South China Sea. You've got people like Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan. You've got Biden saying that you're repeatedly saying that if China were to um, try to take Taiwan by force and reincorporate it into the PRC, then the US would step in militarily. You've got attempts to remilitarize Japan. You've got attempts to bolster the, the so-called first island chain with Taiwan, Japan, South Korea. Parallel to all that, you've got a trade war uh, with the attacks on Huawei, the attempts to prevent the Chinese semiconductor industry from catching up with the West. You've got a disgusting propaganda war with these slanders being hurled in relation to Xinjiang, lies being told in relation to Hong Kong and so on. And you've got this sort of ideological attack on the whole Chinese political and economic system, this attempt to define it as authoritarian and contrast it with countries that Biden gets to define as democracies. You've got attempts to smear China's relationships with other countries, particularly in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, talking about debt traps and so on, setting up alternatives to the Belt and Road Initiative, etc. So today, when you've got, or uh, Saturday rather, when you've got hundreds of thousands of people that are coming out into Tiananmen Square or other public spaces in China to celebrate National Day, they're remembering their history and they're also defending their present, they're defending their rights, their sovereignty, their freedom to develop according to their own path. And they're rejecting this US-led new Cold War. They're standing tall, they're standing proud. And another factor to just throw in there quickly with the timing is that you've got just around the corner, a couple of weeks away, the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of China. That's coming up. So you can see the National Day celebrations to some degree is being part of the preparation for that. And, you know, we, we're yet to see what exactly the Congress will bring, but I think it's a pretty fair bet that there'll be a big focus on common prosperity, making sure that the whole population is benefiting from China's rise, and on these incredibly ambitious targets around tackling climate change, also developing the internal market, pushing forward with advanced technology without needing to necessarily rely so much on what is becoming an increasingly hostile US, and then developing self-defense capacity in an environment which is becoming quite dangerous owing to this US-led policy of China encirclement. So I think the National Day, the National Day celebrations are always very potent, are always very important, but have got a particular resonance this year. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you mentioned something a moment ago, Carlos, that I think is really important to to highlight, because to me, it is one of the core differences, if maybe if not the core difference. Uh, when we talk about the rise of China and the rise of countries like the United States, and that's the fact that China's rise has been peaceful. It has not been marked by war, aggression, uh, intervention, sanctions, uh, interference in other countries. It, you know, all of the, the, the hallmarks of uh, U.S. imperialism and British imperialism before that, I feel is simply absent 
in uh, uh, China's rise here in recent years. Now, of course, that's not to say that, uh, you know, there aren't any issues. And, you know, in China, the, you know, the rivers flow with milk and honey and the streets are paved with gold. But even still, the very the, just the fundamentally different character of the nature of China's rise, I think, uh, uh, has a lot to do with why it's able to have these relationships with all of these countries like you described through the Belt and Road initiatives, through um, bodies like uh, uh, the BRICS grouping, which seems to be steadily growing and strengthening as uh, uh, time rolls on. But you wouldn't get that impression if your analysis of China is coming from uh, the West and the, the major metropoles of imperialism and of capitalism. I mean, they make the Chinese government I think generally and and Xi Jinping in general as these, you know, devilish evil sorts of elements. And, you know, China is just this uh, desolate human rights abuse uh, uh, hellscape, uh, basically. Uh, You know what I mean? And so you would assume that you could ascribe all of the characteristics of imperialism onto China. But when one looks at the reality and the facts of how it played out, it's simply not the case. And so the, the the narrative then of, you know, an aggressive China or even Chinese imperialism, as some people call it, even some people nominally on the left use that kind of language. It basically, to me, it falls on its face. It falls flat because, as I say, the, the very dynamics of these relationships is fundamentally different. But how do you see that aspect of China's uh, maneuvering, if you will? How does that factor into uh, uh, how China as a country operates internationally. Yeah, it's it's very important to paint this concre- contrast the way that you painted it, which is first, what is the basis of the US-led system, which is an imperialist system? What does that look like on the ground in reality? Its core infrastructure is military. It's based around a network of 800 military bases. It's based around military alliances led by NATO, but increasingly expanding now to the Pacific. It's based on highly aggressive war games such as RIMPAC and joint exercises with Japan, joint exercises with South Korea. It's based on a massive network of illegal, unilateral, unenforceable sanctions. It's based on economic coercion. It's based on the debt trap. You know, China's often accused of debt traps, but actually It's the IMF and it's the Western financial institutions that have been the real trailblazers of debt traps when countries come to them for loans, forcing them to accept conditions of austerity, forcing them to accept conditions of privatization, uh, deregulation, deunionization, etc. So that's an actually existing infrastructure. That's not conjecture. That's not guessing. That's not a conspiracy and talking about things that may or may not exist. Those are facts on the ground that are undisputed and undisputable. And that is a complete contrast with the relations that China has with the rest of the world. Uh, China is the major trading partner now of two thirds of the world's countries. Uh, In Africa, 40 out of 50-ish countries have signed up to the Belt and Road. A majority of Latin American countries have signed up. A majority of Southeast Asian, Central Asian, Caribbean countries have signed up. And the fact is that Chinese trade, Chinese aid, Chinese investment 
is welcome around the world. You know, China, for example, Chinese investment and trade has been absolutely crucial to progressive projects in Venezuela, in Cuba, in Nicaragua, in Bolivia, and in other countries. And you know, you've got very uh, undisputable anti-imperialist leaders such as Hugo Chavez or Nicolas Maduro or Fidel Castro, Raul Castro or Evo Morales or Dilma Rousseff, who talk very favorably about the relationship that their countries under their leadership have had with China. Uh, these are not people whose eyes are closed to uh, problems of imperialism, problems of hegemony, problems of domination. But the fact is they've had mutually beneficial win-win relations with China, where China has not engaged with them in an exploitive, exploitative way. China has traded with them. China has offered them products. China has offered them investment. China has provided them with a market. Um, and that has been a lifesaver. And there's two very important things that characterize Chinese trade and Chinese investment that stand in contrast to the US. One is that there's a huge focus on developing infrastructure, the infrastructure that these countries of the global south that have been trapped for centuries in forced underdevelopment, as most famously described by Walter Rodney in his book, uh, How the West Underdeveloped Africa, what China brings is precisely development. That's what they're interested in. They've seen how they've managed to develop themselves, what roads have done for them, what rail has done for them, what schools, what hospitals, what all of this infrastructure has done for their economy and for the well-being of their people. And they believe that they've got something useful, some lessons that can be learned throughout the rest of the world. And they're willing to share all that and they share their technology as well. The other aspect in relation to investment and lending is that Chinese financial institutions, its import-export bank, its major state banks and its development banks and so on, they don't have loan conditionality. They don't say, yeah, we'll lend you this money, but you have to privatize your water, you have to privatize your oil industry or your electricity industry. They lend you the money on perfectly normal and acceptable terms. Um, and there's no coercion involved, and there's no conditionality involved, which is a massive difference, a massive contrast with what the US and the Western European countries offer. And speaking of <clears throat> what the West and Western countries offer, I, I wanted to bring up this issue of uh, the recent U.S. Pacific Island Community Summit, where, you know, the U.S. had this summit with uh, leaders and representatives of uh, the governments of the Pacific region. And what basically, <clears throat> excuse me, um, to me amounts to an effort by Washington to try to counter China's influence in the region. Uh, not that long ago, there was this whole dust up. The U.S. government was was rather upset when they noted the um, strengthening of relations between China and namely the uh, uh, Solomon Islands, a, a country that we really don't hear that much about uh, in the U.S. But all of a sudden, Washington was uh, very, very concerned about it. And, uh, you know, Solomon Islands under the uh, leadership of Prime Minister Manasseh So Guevara, who I believe initially declined to declined to sign this uh, partnership agreement with the U.S., but I believe he ultimately did. And I'm just wondering what you're making of these uh, maneuvers by the U.S. in the uh, uh, Pacific. Uh, uh, Carlos, I mean, particularly as we see the U.S. do similar moves on the African continent, in Latin America, and, and so on. Yeah, that's right. You know, the the U.S. and Australia and Britain seem to go into a, you know, a sort of frenzy when China and the Solomon Islands signed their security agreement a few months ago. The main substance of which is just providing the Solomon Islands police with some training 
and potentially some support if it's needed and if the Solomon Islands government requests it. And there's really, there's nothing whatsoever that's unusual about that agreement. Actually, the Solomons already have similar arrangements in place with Australia, with Papua New Guinea, with New Zealand, with Fiji. And, and Prime Minister Sogavari explained that, you know, we're just trying to diversify our relationships. Of course, that reflects the fact that there's changing dynamics in the region. China has become a very important player. It's an important economic partner of the, the Solomon Islands and other countries in the Pacific. It's cooperating with them on a number of important initiatives, particularly in relation to combating and mitigating climate change, which is obviously a very, very serious danger for these islands. So from China's perspective, it's sort of, it's trying to be a good neighbor. It's pursuing win-win mutually beneficial relationships. But the response from the US, from Australia to the security agreement was sort of bordering on the hysterical. You had Scott Morrison, who was at the time Australia's prime minister, said, you know, he said that it was an example of China being an autocratic nation that's not playing by the normal rules. You sort of have to ask, what, what are the normal rules then? You know, white colonial outposts in the Pacific get to have security arrangements with the Solomon Islands, but not China. You know, as I said, China was simply signing an agreement that was very similar to the one that Australia has. You had senior, like highly respected Australian journalists basically calling for an invasion and a regime change operation in the Solomon Islands. Um, you have the US State Department voicing very similar opinions. They were fear-mongering about the possibility of China establishing a military base in the Solomons, which is something the Chinese have been, said very clearly they're not interested in doing. But there's a bit of an irony there because, of course, the US has got hundreds of military bases in the Pacific. The fact is that the US, Australia, Britain, the imperialist powers have almost completely ignored these Pacific Island countries for decades. And they've been left to just try and overcome the legacy of a century of colonialism, a century of underdevelopment by themselves. And a lot of these countries suffer really badly. They're, like, they're suffering with terrible poverty, terrible inequality. Um, they're really suffering the consequences of that forced underdevelopment that characterized the whole colonial and imperialist system. But countries like the US, countries like Britain, the, their former colonizers don't feel any sort of sense of responsibility to them. As you said, you know, when, when, when do you ever hear the Solomon Islands reported in the news in the United States or in Britain? It's only when all of a sudden they're doing, they're recognizing the, the, PP, the PRC as the government of China and they're establishing security relationships with China. You know, China's a nearby major power it's never had a colonial relationship with these countries. It's very willing to provide aid. It's very willing to provide investment. It's very willing to help these countries to develop without compromising their sovereignty. And on that basis, it makes complete sense for those islands to cooperate closely with China. But that cooperation is the exact opposite of what the US wants. You know, the US is engaged in a strategy of China encirclement. It's engaged in a strategy of China containment. The US is pursuing hegemony in the Pacific. It's steadily increasing its militarization of the region, as we talked about earlier. It's stepping up its naval presence in the South China Sea. It's bolstering the Indo-Pacific command. It's undermining the one China policy. It's ramping up its war games, its joint exercises, its weapons deployment. And that's the reason for this sudden flurry of news and of diplomatic activity and the reason. That's the reason this US Pacific Island country summit has taken place. That's the reason that the US, Australia, Japan and Britain are forming uh, their so-called partners in the Blue Pacific. 
these powers are doing everything they can to prevent normal, mutually beneficial relations between China and the Pacific Island countries. Uh, you know, the reason being that they insist on the whole region being part of a US sphere of influence in which the people of the region are just, you know, humble pawns, pawns in the US imperial chess game. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Carlos Martinez. And Carlos, we got a question here in the by any means necessary chat. Uh, Prester John too says, quote, I'm curious as to why China isn't interested in helping the nations of the global south to nationalize their strategic resources or their primary industries. China represents a government managed market fundamentalist system. As a radical socialist, this deserves examination. Uh, what is your uh, response to this? <laughs> well, that's uh, that's a pretty complex question. First thing to say is that China's not interested in imposing its policies on any country. And, and, and that's that's part of its whole strategy of international relations. And it's a, you know, it's elevated to a principle of non-interference in other countries' affairs. So China deals with countries, it deals with governments of countries and it, it doesn't have a say in how they run their economies. Uh, it deals with countries whose uh, economies are, relatively speaking, uh, deregulated, relatively kind of neoliberal, where there is not very much state ownership of assets, such as Colombia. And China has excellent relations with Colombia and has had for a long time, in spite of Colombia, um, for nearly all of that time until essentially the last few weeks, uh, been run by a pretty right-wing reactionary government. China also has excellent relationships with Cuba, which is almost entirely nationalized. And the Cuba-China relationship is extremely important to, to Cuba's sustainability and longevity. China also has extremely good relations with Venezuela, and you know, which has been pursuing projects of nationalization. China has very good relationships with Bolivia under Evo Morales, um, and now under the new government, um, also pursuing projects of nationalization with Nicaragua, pursuing projects of nationalization, Zimbabwe, uh, pursuing projects of nationalization. So China is certainly not opposed to nationalization. And the, the core of the Chinese economy remains in state hands. Um, but also China doesn't, doesn't consider it within its gift to define how other countries organize their affairs. Um, as to the nature of the Chinese economy, you know, this is a big question that we would need more time to go into in more depth. But the fact is, the commanding heights of the Chinese economy, most importantly, finance, telecommunications, energy, etc., these are controlled by the state. They're run by state-owned uh, enterprises, 
they're accountable to the government, they're accountable to the National People's Congress, they're accountable to the people. And you cannot believe that, but there's a fact that, you know, there's a expression in England, I don't know if it corresponds in the US, but the proof of the pudding is in the eating. So you can tell the quality of something, you can uh, figure out its characteristics um, by by tasting it, by experiencing it. Now, China is the country that has been able to make extremely, like, incredibly impressive progress in relation to combating climate change, in relation to rolling out renewable energy, in relation to um, suppressing the COVID-19 pandemic, in relation to lifting 800 million people out of poverty, you know, for a enormous Asian country of 1.4 billion people that not so long ago was among the poorest countries in the world to eliminate extreme poverty and to have that impact on so many people's lives um, is an indication that they are operating in the interest not of an elite capitalist class, which is you know essentially the definition of a capitalist country that the ruling class that the ruling class is the capitalist class, but in China the people are in charge. That it's a uh, society which is run by and in the interests of the mass of the Chinese people. So I think the characterization of China in the question is fundamentally incorrect. Yeah, I appreciate you breaking that down. And it's kind of funny. I mean, we do have a similar saying in the U.S., but it's simply, you know, the proof is in the pudding. So, you know, nice to know those old uh, colonial bonds between uh, uh, <laughs> England and the U.S. still exist. And, you know, I wanted to switch gears a little bit, Carlos, although actually it, it's actually pretty related. I wanted to raise the issue of uh, Russia as we uh, have seen these referendums take place in these four uh, provinces in Ukraine, the breakaway republics of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, along with Kherson and uh, Zaporozhye, where these uh, provinces voted to uh, formally join Russia and things like that. And I want to connect it to Russia's um, uh, relationship with China a little later. But I wanted to start by talking about uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin's uh, recent speech. Uh, this was given at a ceremony that was held in the Kremlin uh, just this past Friday, where the uh, agreements on the admission of those regions uh, were actually signed. And I want to read a little bit of what uh, Putin said here and uh, uh, come back and get your thoughts, Carlos. Of course, this is something that's not, uh, uh, you know, Putin's words are never really well publicized and certainly not contextualized to the people of the U.S. But he said in part, the West is ready to step over everything to preserve the neo-colonial system that allows it to parasitize, if I'm saying that correctly, in fact, plunder the world at the expense of the power of the dollar and technological dictates collect real tribute from humanity, extract the main source of unearned prosperity, the rent of the hegemon. The maintenance of this rent is their key, genuine and absolutely self-serving motive. That is why total desovereignization is in their interest. Hence, their aggression towards independent states, towards traditional values and original cultures. Attempts to undermine international and integration processes beyond their control, new world currencies and centers of technological development. It is critical for them that all countries surrender their sovereignty to the United States. The ruling elites of some states voluntarily agree to do this, voluntarily agree to become vassals. Others are bribed. 
intimidated. And if it doesn't work out, they destroy entire states, leaving behind humanitarian catastrophes, disasters, ruins, millions of ruined, mangled human destinies, terrorist enclaves, social disaster zones, protectorates, colonies, and semi-colonies. They don't care as long as they get their own benefit. I want to emphasize once again, it is precisely in greed, in the intention to preserve its unlimited power, that there are the real reasons for the hybrid war that the, quote, collective West is waging against Russia. They do not wish us freedom, but they want to see us as a colony. They want not equal cooperation, but robbery. They want to see us not as a free society, but as a crowd of soulless slaves. Now, that's just a little bit of what is a uh, uh, sort of a long speech. I encourage people to seek out a transcript and read the entire thing for yourself. And, you know, the speech, of course, is part and parcel of um, Putin sort of asserting the legitimacy of these votes. But uh, just wondering your top line thoughts, Carlos, about this speech from Putin, why he sort of took this angle that he did, and what do you think it means for this um, ongoing uh, war in Ukraine? Because we have the Russian government, on the one hand, affirming the legitimacy of this referendum, with the Ukrainian government under Volodymyr Zelensky completely rejecting it, and as we know, trying to basically fast-track Ukraine into NATO. So given all of that, how do you see this? Yeah, I, I'm, I also read the, the speech in full, and I would recommend others to read it. Uh, you know, there's a couple of things, a couple of relatively serious criticisms that I've got of it, but the the core of it is that actually he demonstrates a quite remarkably clear understanding of the basic geopolitics of of, of the present era, and particularly in relation to the current crisis in Ukraine. You know, he says very correctly that the West after the Soviet collapse in 1991, after the imposition of this kind of neoliberal shock therapy and market fundamentalism in the 1990s, the West thought that Russia would never rise, you know, because the Russian economy was utterly broken. It was characterized by intense poverty, destitution, desperation. And the idea in the US was, was really to turn Russia into a client state that was completely reliant on the West, completely subservient to its interests. And you'll remember, this was the era of Francis Fukuyama's The End of History. You know, Western liberal democracy has won. And, 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 and that's that. You know, you, you, there's no choice for countries like Russia now but to fit into our system. And yet, here we are 30 years later, Russia has reasserted itself. It has forged its own independent development path. It has forged alliances outside the dominant US, NATO, EU imperialist bloc. It has defended its sovereignty and the basic interests of its people. And, and Putin's absolutely correct to say that the US has sort of taken this as a major affront and wants to punish Russia for its disobedience. Furthermore, you know, he gives uh, we are part of which you quoted a pretty accurate description of the mechanics of modern imperialism. And, you know, you could almost be reading Lenin where he says, you know, the West is trying to preserve a neo-colonial system that's based on the dollar, that's based on military supremacy, that's based on technology, and that all of that allows it to extract a tribute from the rest of humanity. You know, he, he uses that phrasing, extracting a tribute, which is, you know, it's really interesting because that's basically Marxist terminology that reflects something of the Marxist understanding of imperialism. Um, and the US wants to preserve this hegemony. And that's why 
the US is so deadly hostile to this project of a multipolar world, which is being put forward by Russia, is being put forward by China, by Iran, by South Africa, by the African Union, by the progressive countries of Latin America, and so on. Obviously, as you've mentioned, Putin refers to the incorporation of Donetsk, of Lugansk, of Zaporovje, of Kherson into the Russian Federation. And the media in the West has predictably been howling about these referendums, calling them fake and so on and so forth. But actually, I think everybody understands that the people of those areas, by a pretty large majority, want to join Russia at this point. You know, the, we're talking about provinces, regions, zones that have suffered really badly under a policy of violent repression and Russophobia from the Kiev government for the last eight years. Thousands have died. You know, Soviet symbology, uh, symbolism has been banned. Meanwhile, Ukrainian ultranationalism has thrived. So you've got the people who defeated the Nazis, they're condemned. And the people who supported the Nazis and who collaborated with the Nazis are celebrated, the likes of Stepan Bandera. So, you know, it's it's perfectly predictable that the West, the Western countries and Kiev and the US and Britain wouldn't accept the legitimacy of these referendums because they go against the West's geopolitical interests. But, you know, this is the type of hypocrisy that we have to expect. After all, you know, they kind of pick and choose when they like referendums, when they don't. Kosovo uh, declared an independence referendum in 1991, for example, and the Western countries were extremely happy with it and recognized it almost immediately because the Kosovan independence referendum supported the West's geopolitical interests. Um, so it's, it's not a matter of serious principle here or any principle other than self-interest. Um, you know, I think there was, the speech was somewhat problematic in the sense that he kind of conflates the Soviet period with the with the Tsarist Empire. And he frames the whole thing not as being so much imperialism against multipolarity or imperialism against socialism, but being imperialism against Russia. And because of that, you know, he doesn't recognize that the Tsarist Empire was itself a colonial project, an imperial project that didn't recognize the national rights of the Ukrainian people or the Georgian people or the people of Armenia, Azerbaijan, Central Asia, Asia, and so on. Um, and, you know, and this is an important point to miss. And you know, the, the Soviets didn't get that question wrong. No, it's, it's not for no reason that Lenin repeatedly referred to the Russian Empire as a prison house of nations. Um, and I think it's an important point because when you don't recognize the Tsarist Empire as a colonial empire, it opens up Russia now, Russia today, to accusations that it's acting in an imperialist way. You know, people will say, well, you don't recognize the Tsar was imperialist, therefore you're not anti-imperialist, you're just anti-West and you're trying to recreate the empire, which is a completely false narrative. You know, that's not a valid critique at all because, you know, the world has changed a lot since 100 years ago. You had the emergence of the socialist camp. You had the heroic national liberation struggles throughout the global south in the 20th century. You had the rise of China. You had the consolidation, on the other hand, of the capitalist world under US hegemony. All of those things have kind of combined to mean that a country like Russia can't just, you know, decide one day, you know, have a little vote in the cabinet or in parliament to be an imperialist power. Um, you know, that's that's not within their gift. You can't simply decide 
to start dominating other peoples and other nations, you know, the dynamic of the current crisis is actually that Russia is very justifiably trying to protect its own borders, trying to protect its own sovereignty, trying to prevent itself from getting dominated by the US and by NATO. It's not engaged in imperialism. On the contrary, it's working towards a multipolar and an anti-hegemonic project. But by failing to recognize that Russian history before the Soviet Union, before 1917, without recognizing the imperialist colonialist nature of that empire, then I feel like Putin sort of opens himself up a little bit to accusations of imperialism now. Carlos, I really appreciate you raising these criticisms because this is not the first time that um, I feel like Vladimir Putin in these public speeches have, you know, made these kinds of ahistorical and at times I would even argue almost slanderous sort of uh, statements about uh, Soviet history and things like that. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252-11320. I am here. Carlos Martinez is here as we continue. And we've got a caller on the line here. David, tell us what's on your mind. Uh, hi, yes. I have a question for your guest. Um, uh, I, I, I'm curious uh, to what extent uh, Chinese Americans or Americans of Chinese descent uh, view whether or not they view the, the Chinese government in favorably. That, that's my question. I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, David. Uh, good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, yeah, Carlos, I mean, basically a question about, you know, I, I suppose the attitudes of the Chinese diaspora as it pertains to China. I mean, uh, uh, you know, broad sort of question, but I mean, what's your thought on that? Well, um, I think there is as much, you know, there's an enormous variety uh, in, in opinion within the, within the Chinese diaspora. What I would say um, is that there's a lot of Chinese patriotism, and, and, and that's one outcome of the fact that you know, China suffered under imperialism during the century of humiliation for 100 years. You know, the, the Chinese were an oppressed nation, and the first waves of Chinese immigration to the Americas, uh, principally from Guangdong province, happened in the 19th century in a situation where China was, had been made extremely poor as a result of the century of humiliation, as a result of imperialism, and the general sort of decline and, and decadence of the Qing Empire. And, but there was a feeling that, you know, um, the Chinese people were oppressed peoples. And for that reason, what you get a lot of the time with the Chinese diaspora, even where families are not pro-communist, are not particularly favorable to the CPC government, however, uh, they do have a patriotic sense. They do like to see the fact that China is doing well and that, you know, Chinese people, ordinary Chinese people, including Chinese workers and Chinese peasants, increasingly live very well. And that's one of the reasons that 
the Chinese strategy of reform and opening up in 1978, where they started to uh, welcome foreign investment, a lot of that investment came from Taiwan, came from Hong Kong, came from uh, relatively wealthy diaspora communities in the West and in Southeast Asia. Um, and they were able to do that because of this kind of sense of Chineseness um, and, and patriotism and, and kind of national sentiment was there. And that's something that, if you look at history, you, you can see that never really was the case in the Soviet Union, where you had Russian diaspora communities. They were anti-Soviet, and that, you know, that made them essentially deeply hostile, by and large, to the Soviet government and to the whole, the whole project of the USSR, whereas that hasn't been the case, generally speaking, with the Chinese diaspora in the West. There are, there, you know, there's uh, here in here in Britain, the most of the Chinese diaspora up until the last 10 or 20 years was Cantonese and had come via Hong Kong and had grown up within a colonial system, uh, uh, education system that was run basically by the British. Um, and obviously had, you know, many had, had absorbed a lot of the prejudices that came with that, um, whereas newer ways of immigration in China now, particularly from Guangdong and from Fujian and other provinces, would feel much more Chinese and would feel much more favourable towards the Chinese, towards the CPC government. But as I say, you know, there's there's a just a tremendous variety of opinion. Yeah, sure. And, you know, I think that's the case really with... Um any uh, a diaspora group. And it's funny, you mentioned this tremendous variety of opinions in the diaspora. I mean, I feel like there's a, a tremendous uh, diversity of opinion, even within the Chinese Communist Party, you know, with its 90 some odd million members. Uh, there's this Oh, there's this document that I always found fascinating. I think it was this Chinese scholar. I can never remember his name, but he and you might know what I'm talking about, Carlos. But he identifies like seven different political trends just within the Chinese Communist Party. So I, I just think it sort of shows just sort of the, the rigorous nature of uh, discourse and discussion that happens there. But that brings me to another uh, question, Carlos, because uh, we were talking about uh, Russia uh, a little earlier, namely uh, this issue of the referendums in these four regions in Ukraine voting to become a part of Russia. And so at this juncture, I just want to know, what, how do you consider China's relationship <clears throat> with Russia. I mean, it, uh, you know, has not come out in, in condemnation of uh, Russia's invasion or Ukraine or things like that. It has not necessarily come out in vocal support. But uh, the two governments seem uh, pretty clear on sort of publicly affirming uh, the strength and continued building of their relationship. So I'm wondering how you see that and how does China's relationship with Russia factor into its broader international thrust? Yeah, I mean, I think China's relationship with Russia is probably the most important relationship in global politics at the moment in terms of humanity's trajectory towards a multipolar system of international relations, which, you know, which will be much more equal, will be much more democratic, and really provides us the window that we need as a species to end imperialism, to end hegemony, to end domination. So it's a it's a really critical importance, and it's a it's a tense and it's a complex relationship. You know, uh, uh, you know, Putin mentioned in his speech on Friday the the century of humiliation. He mentioned the opium wars. What he didn't mention is that Russia was one of the powers 
the one with the imperialist powers that imposed unequal treaties on China. So China and Russia have got a, a, a tense and unequal relationship going back centuries, um, which was then exacerbated by the Sino-Soviet split in which you know, the, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and the Communist Party of China had a huge historic ideological split that led to these two largest socialist countries being more or less mortal enemies from 1960 until the 1980s. So uh, I think it's it's ironic in a sense that it sort of, it took Russia to go capitalist <laughs> um, to, to really improve relations between the two countries again. But I would say the relations between Russia and China are now at the highest point that they've been since probably the early to mid 1950s. Um, that's really exemplified by the deal that was signed in February February this year, uh, the joint statement of the Chinese and Russian documents that was signed when uh, Putin was in Beijing for the Winter Olympics. He sat down with Xi Jinping and they signed this document. And it really, you know, our, our mutual friend Ben Norton said that this was, you know, this is really an important date marking a shift of global politics um, because it represents a real deepening of the integration of these two, what are essentially superpowers. So, for example, it includes a 30-year deal of Russia supplying gas to China via a new pipeline. Um, it talks about using Russian currencies and Chinese currencies and the necessity of challenging the dominance of the US dollar. Um, it talks about, you know, a new era of multipolarity. So, it's, you know, it's a crystal clear statement of intent of breaking down this US-led, NATO-led, unilateral, hegemonic system. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's very promising for the peoples of the world. Yeah, you know, definitely. And, you know, just in thinking uh, uh, about that and just sort of uh, sort of analyzing the, the politics of all of this, Carlos, I mean, when one considers, like uh, we were mentioning earlier in speaking of China, sort of uh, socialism with the Chinese characteristics, and I also want to say, because you, you made reference to the split between uh, the Soviet Union and China, if, if anyone hearing this wants to get sort of a deeper understanding of that, Carlos did a wonderful series of a long-form interviews with a friend of the show, Brian Becker, on the Socialist Program about just that topic, and they got very in-depth, so I do um, highly recommend that. And so on on the issue of uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, Carlos, because you mentioned earlier about how uh, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is, is heading towards their Congress soon. How does Xi Jinping uh, factor into that? Because my impression is that his position, his presence, if you will, as the president of China sort of signals, uh, you know, a kind of left turn uh, uh, within uh, China as well. And I don't now if you you know disagree with that framing of it, then, then certainly let me know. But how does Xi Jinping sort of factor into socialism with Chinese characteristics? And how does he sort of uh, uh, practice that, if you will? Like, how has that notion sort of materialized uh, uh, in this most recent period? Yeah, uh, left turn is a is a interesting phrase. I don't know if if that's exactly what I would use. Um, mm -hmm. Because, the, you know, it, there's maybe uh, a suggestion there that previous administrations were 
kind of shifting away from the socialist path. And and I don't think that's actually what Hu Jintao's project was. I don't think that's what Jiang Zemin's project was. I don't think that's what Deng Xiaoping's project was. Um, and actually, a lot of the things that Xi Jinping thought is really associated with were started previously, were started under the Hu Jintao administration. Um, for example, the the bringing back a comprehensive welfare system, rolling out healthcare again to you know the entire country and particularly the countryside, rolling out a social insurance and unemployment benefits and these things. So there was a recognition, you know, in uh, in previous periods that inequality was becoming a very serious problem in China, that corruption was becoming a very serious problem in China. And, you know, uh, Xi Jinping, obviously, we, we very much associate him with the targeted poverty alleviation program. Um, but, you know, China's been working extremely hard on poverty alleviation from 1949 onwards. You know, even though reform and opening up from 1978 introduced uh, elements of inequality that absolutely weren't there previous to that, uh, because it introduced elements of private capital, um, uh, its its effects and the purpose of it was to reduce inequality and improve people's conditions of life. And the fact is that people's conditions of life very much have improved continuously from you know from 1914 onwards, including through you know the what they call the the wild 90s, uh, when there was a very strong focus on ec economic growth. But it has to be said that the economic growth wasn't just for nothing. It wasn't just to put money in the hands of an elite. Economic growth benefited the whole society, and people now eat better than they used to. They live better than they used to. They get better education than they used to. They have better jobs than they used to. Um, but it's it's absolutely the case that Xi Jinping has um, really kind of systematized and synthesized a lot of these ideas um, around some some key principles. I think the most important two, if you had to pick out. Of of these key principles that you that we associate very strongly with Xi Jinping in particular, would be common prosperity, and ecological civilization. Common prosperity is this idea that you know uh, various Chinese leaders have talked about cake theory. You know, do we focus on making the cake bigger, or do we focus on making the uh, sharing the cake more fairly? And Xi Jinping's theory, you know, Xi Jinping's. Uh, thing is that we need to do both of those things. We need to grow the cake, but we need to we need to share it more fairly. We need to make sure that all the Chinese people are benefiting from China's rise. And what we've seen in the last couple of years is uh, you know a significant crackdown on big capital, um, a big increase in regulation, a big focus on improving the conditions of the lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. And obviously, the success of the targeted poverty alleviation program—you know, this seven, eight-year program where they sent hundreds of thousands of party workers out into the villages to find out exactly which families were living below the poverty line, and then work with them consistently over a process of years to move them permanently and sustainably above the poverty line. You know, that's that's an incredible thing. And and that, that's very much associated with the Xi Jinping administration. Ecological civilization is, of course, a recognition that the struggle to protect biodiversity and to prevent climate breakdown is incredibly important, incredibly urgent. 
and and therefore you've had these announcements that you know China set targets, very ambitious targets, of reaching peak carbon emissions by 2030, before 2030, and reaching carbon neutrality by 2060. Uh, and you know if it achieves those, which you know, I have to say I'm pretty sure it will, because the Chinese are not in the habit of making promises they can't keep, then that will be, you know, by far, by far the fastest any country in the world has gone from, you know, uh, under development to carbon neutrality. Um, so this this is really th- these are these are the themes of the Xi Jinping era. Um, there's its common prosperity and its ecological civilization. And I think that any socialist, any progressive and forward-thinking person can can appreciate that these are these are you know progressive values to be celebrated and shared. Absolutely. I appreciate you breaking that down. So it sounds like you're saying then that the Xi Jinping presidency is not a return to something, but actually the, the maintenance or staying of a course that had already been set by previous leaders. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think so. There's, you know, I think there's a, I've written a quite long article on my blog, Invent the Future, called The Continuities of the Chinese Revolution. Mm. And it's precisely about that. You know, obviously different leaderships, different administrations have emphasized different things, but there has been a core continuity to every generation of leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, which has been about pursuing uh, you know, a Chinese-flavored socialism, socialism with Chinese characteristics, and improving the, the 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 living conditions of the Chinese people, ending poverty, and establishing a strong, stable, rejuvenated China. Yeah, and when you break down what this, uh, what the different leaders of China have been putting forth, and and not only been speaking about, but really practicing and showing through action these different uh, progressive values that you're speaking to, Carlos, it makes it even more, I mean, ridiculous and absurd that really any country would seek to intervene with something that is clearly not only having a positive impact on the people of China, excuse me, but of the people around the world uh, through these different projects and partnerships through the Belt and Road Initiative and things like that. And so we have to ask ourselves why. I think we have to ask ourselves, particularly those of us who are in the West, who are in the United States, like those of us here who are in the UK, like you, Carlos, and why these countries uh, seek to scuttle and to undermine uh, the progress and the reputation of China that is only seeking to uh, uh, sort of better develop itself and improve conditions for its people. Well, of course, in the case of the U.S., we're talking about an empire that is in decline and therefore will engage any number of uh, uh, maneuvers to try to stop another country from coming to power. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Carlos Martinez, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.